this is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I'm joined by Tony Crow. Um, Tony was introduced to me from a former guest, Otakara Klecki, and Otakara was a fantastic guest, so I immediately had to pursue Tony, and I fortunately have her with us today. She has written a book called Never a $7 Whore, My Journey from a Lady of the Night to a Lady of the Boardroom. How are you doing today, Tony? Oh, I'm doing fine today. Thank you. Now, you have a story that I think is really important for people to hear because it it sounds like you got caught up in a situation that many, many people could find their themselves caught up in or their child or relative caught up in. That's correct. Can we go into what happened? Sure, absolutely. Uh, when I was uh, 17 years old, I actually fell in love with a man who um, promised to make me a glamorous model. I was living in Chicago, Illinois, uh, and I met him at a train station, actually. He came back to the train station four times, three or four times, to um, get me to agree to date him, and I dated him. Eventually, he convinced me to move to Cleveland. I did move to Cleveland with him, and then it turned out what, what he really was running was a brothel. It was a brothel. Mm-hmm. And How old was he? Oh, goodness. He had to be 35, maybe 35, 36, much older than me, but an incredibly attractive man with uh, articulate, impeccably dressed, um, very charming, charisma. He was the whole package. He was everything that you expected. And he didn't look like a pimp, which was the key. He didn't have the pimp look about him. He had the I'm a gentleman look about like an agent or something like an an agent, like a talent. Um, The book is about the fact that even though I started out that way, I ended up as a vice president of operations for some fortune 50 companies here in the United States running a $460 million business, uh, having the opportunity to influence the lives of many people and to be a leader. Cool. We'll get to that. I want to. I want to just go through the story. So I got. I got to. Got to Cleveland, and met all the different. Uh, there was three other uh, women there. Uh, one of them uh, was a former Essence model. One of them was from Ireland, and um, one of them was just had known him since he was a child. And they were all working as high-paying escorts. And what they wanted to do was train me to be one of the escorts too. Uh, serendipity. Uh, is part of what saved me because the lady from Ireland was having a tough time learning. She had only been there about three or four weeks ahead of me. So they couldn't have me and her out at the same time because when they weren't watching her, she'd run away. They'd have to go and find her. Uh. They'd have to go find her. So they figured out that they didn't want two people they have trying to run away. So what I happened ended up. If, what, what would be the consequences of that? And I'm sorry to interrupt. I just. No, 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 no. please. Uh, whatever questions you want. Well, when she ran away and came back, one time they uh, beat her with a hanger. Another time they made her uh, work in a cheap, cheap brothel because remember, these were uh, high class escorts. The thing that saved me were two things. One, my organization skills and two, the fact that I could cook, clean, wash. And uh, so I grew up as the I'm the oldest of six uh, children and I'm about five years older than my youngest sibling. So I was a princess and then I turned into a um, the oldest daughter and the oldest daughter with six stair step children is always working. You know, you're helping mom and, and actually you like helping mom. It's part of what you do. 
So when I got there, they were so busy with her that they could not fully train me. So I managed to uh, take on the task of I would coordinate the hotel rooms, coordinate the cleaning crews and collect the money. Uh, during the day, uh, the rule was every girl had a bogey, you had money that you had to turn in daily. And because I wasn't a whore yet, I actually had to turn in a hundred dollars a day. That was my bogey. That's all I had to get was a hundred. And, and how were you to do this? I, I want to go into the mechanics a bit more because sure. we're covering a, a, a lot of ground and it'd be cool to get into sort of the details. Like sure. how did this number come about that? Oh, you need to go fetch a hundred bucks a day. What, well, what's that? The, the key is that everybody in the room had a minimum amount of money you had to bring in each day. Uh, and you got assigned a number. And I guess a trainee whore had $100. The other ladies had much more uh, than I did. And they didn't even care how you got the $100. The key was they wanted you to volunteer to be an escort. So what uh, baby, baby is what was the, uh, they called her the bottom bitch. Baby was the person in charge of all of us for the pimp because he had women that were high class escorts and he had women that were street walkers and the street walkers were someplace totally different than us. They lived somewhere different and they had a different person taking care of them. But baby was in charge of everybody, both the street walkers and the, and the high class people. How how many people were involved all all together? Uh, Four of us that were supposedly the, uh, Escorts, we lived in a house, a really beautiful mansion uh, someplace. And then there were another four, I believe, that were streetwalkers. So eight, nine with him. And, okay, one thing that I find weird is you use the term bottom bitch. Yes. For somebody who's in charge, which seems completely contrary in my head. It's because she holds it down. You know, this is street vernacular. So oh. She's the one holding it down, keeping it straight, making it go. Oh, okay. The one that, that keeps it, keeps it the foundation. She's the bottom. She's the one that's making things going. She's the one that uh, actually behaves like a girlfriend to the pimp. Mm. So when he goes to private parties or he's out in public, uh, the bottom bitch is the lady that gets to go with him. The rest of you just, hey, too bad for you. And he did not live with us, by the way. He had his own house, separate and distinct from the house where the escorts lived and the house where the streetwalkers lived. He lived separate and alone by himself. Interesting. So his, quote, bottom bitch lived with you, not with him. Yes. She stayed with us to keep us in line. She stayed with the uh, high-class escorts. Uh, He personally went out and watched the streetwalkers because they were the ones in the most danger. The uh, escorts, the people that they were trying to train me into, actually went out to dinner with people first. You went to dinner, you went to plays, you went to uh, art festivals, you may go shopping with them. Um, You were like a normal person, except when you finished at the end of the night, they left you a stack of money. Interesting. Interesting. Now, um, I understand from reading some of what you put out that I guess she had known him since she was a child. Yes, you'd known him since I think the fifth grade. So he was already training somebody when he was a child. Is that is it a family business or something? That seems no, kind of a... it. It was not a family business. I I believe he had a talent for recognizing people that 
were uh, vulnerable. And I think way back then, they were vulnerable. But uh, she was also very clever because um, when you think about it now, everybody that was in the house, they, they've been running this thing probably forever, probably mm-hmm. 10, 15 years. But I had only been in the house uh, zero. Iris had been in the house like um, three weeks. Uh, Essence had been in the house like three years. So what happened to all those other people? She was successfully uh, bringing people in and bringing them out because I believe at the end, what she wanted was for it to be her and him, like a normal couple. You know, Mm. this was just their business. Not psychotic at all. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit psychotic. And she could get you to believe she was your friend. She actually was uh, probably one of the most complicated people I think I've ever met in my life. Because she really wanted you to do well, but she actually wanted you not to be there. So that, you kind of think about that. She was measured on how much money you brought in. At the same time, her goal was to break you down and get you out of there. So it would just be her and him at the end. So it was a, it was an interesting situation. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds that way. And can we look at the process? Because I think where all of this becomes really valuable is people are in danger of being caught up in it. Oh, yeah. So I think it would be useful for everybody to understand the methodology of recruiting and, and things like that. Um, I understand your father was a cop. So My- that shows that even with that kind of savvy behind you, you can still get kind of caught up in some things. Oh, you, you actually become, um, you become that person's uh, toy. And I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, I wanted to be a model because I thought that I was a little bit different looking. I was tall and slender, uh, naturally highlighted. I was articulate. I'm smart. And I thought that 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 was one of the things I could do. And I had totally bought into the glamorous model uh, TV and movies where somebody discovers you. And the next day, there you are making thousands of dollars a day, just posing, having a great time. Uh, I think he uh, levered that to get me to leave Chicago, because while I was in Chicago, uh, we were having a wonderful time. Uh, he immediately came in. And I think one of the things that probably the listeners want to understand is that you get isolated. You actually become very isolated because the first thing he did was change the way I looked. Then he modified the clothes I was wearing. So I wore different things. Then he uh, made it so that I actually had so many appointments that uh, he set up that were doing my work time. I actually lost my job. I was a medical assistant and I lost my job for so many missing work too much. So that took away my income and I became dependent on him. Okay. Slow down though. Let, I, I'd love to hear a timeline of, of some of this. So, so we, um, we met, mm-hmm. uh, I think about a month and a half, maybe five weeks mm-hmm. was the amount of time we were uh, dating before he started talking about, us going to uh, Cleveland. And the reason he put that he wanted us to go to Cleveland was that he had contacts in Cleveland, but he didn't have contacts in Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. 
now that I am older, I recognize that it was actually a setup because what we would do is we would we would go cold calling to these modeling agencies and we did not have appointments. And then they would turn us away. And then what he said was, uh, listen, uh, we can't get appointments here in Chicago. I don't I don't know anyone here, but I have a lot of contacts in Cleveland. Now, as an older corporate woman, I know you have to call up and make appointments before you do. You can't just walk into offices and see people. But as a 17, 18 year old, I was not as smart as that. I thought, you know, that was that that was, you know, you could just go and see people. And we did actually meet some really uh, neat people. We had met two, one agency that said they thought I had potential. But all the rest of the time we couldn't get in. We were cold calling photographers to get pictures taken. Uh, we did get some very professional headshots and body shots taken at the time that, that he paid for. Uh, we went out to have dinner at most, some of the best place, best restaurants in Chicago. Uh, he had a condo that uh, he had out on Lakeshore Drive, which is overlooking the lake. So he seemed to be everything that he said he was. And mm. he treated me better than any gentleman, any man that I had ever met. Of course, I'm a teenager, so I hadn't met that many men, but right. he, uh, he treated me that way. And you said he was very, very um, attractive. Oh, my goodness, yes. It's and, the most and compelling. I've ever met. And you probably felt like if you asked any questions, then you would look dumb. I absolutely felt dumb, but I did ask questions, but he always had a ready answer. He had an answer for everything. And one of the things that he said he liked about me uh, was my uh, audacity. The fact that um, I wanted to do things. I wanted more in my life than what I than what I had. And I wanted to uh, make things better for my family. That was part of what I wanted to do. Because even though my father was a policeman, my mom never graduated from uh, high school. She had me and was a sales lady, and they still were struggling with that many children. And my being so much older than everyone else, uh, I felt that I needed to help. And I wasn't helping very much with that um, medical assistance salary I had. I think I was making about $500 a month. But mm. you know, that's better than $0 a month. And it was a oh, two sure. and a half hour ride to the job on public transportation. He was also playing you too, though, because oh, he was establishing you being loyal to family and then he was inserting himself as the family and slowly shifting you away from your current family. Yes. Yes. Because it went from me literally living at my mom's and dad's house to me all living with him. I'd only be at my mom and dad's house a couple nights a week. It also went from me listening to my friends and my mom and dad and having normal conversations to probably 90% of the time I would be talking with him. And I actually uh, adopted the attitude that it wasn't worth it to argue with him about anything. So if he said that uh, red was blue, I'd actually have to make a decision. Am I going to argue with him that red is blue or should I wait until he says that red is purple before I do it? And over time, it just went from normal conversations to eventually um, his conversation. And it went from our uh, lives to his life. So over time, he moved me from uh, being an equal with him to being a uh, subordinate and an isolated subordinate. 
but mm-hmm. I was in love and I just thought he really cared for me and he always had a really great reason why so you saw, he was doing saw signs early though. There there were some signs. Oh, early. absolutely. There were there were signs everywhere that I should have paid attention to. Um, the fact that he didn't want me talking to anyone else was was one of them. The disagreeing disagreeing with him and how upset that made him if you didn't want to do what he wanted to do from just going to a restaurant to uh, what time you wake up in the morning. He get upset if it wasn't exactly the way uh, he wanted it to be. So it wasn't, and I'll put it nicely, it wasn't worth it to argue with him. You know, you're living mm-hmm. in, a, in a beautiful place wearing beautiful clothes and coming from a, a lower middle-class background. I loved it. You know, and teenagers are silly and I write off whatever it was that I was seeing. All the, the signs were there. I just missed them. Oh, and he was gaslighting you like crazy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now for a young female, what would you put out as if this is happening with you now, start thinking about the situation. What yeah, would you have to in, tell? Yeah. In my, in my book, at the end of many of the chapters, I have an exercise for people to think about. And one of the things I say to women is, and probably about the third chapter is it's like a traffic light. It's, if everything is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. You need to stop like they do on traffic lights. If you ever know it's a traffic light, when it goes red, all four corners are red for a moment. Everything mm-hmm. stops so no cars can, can roll each other. So as it's, as it's traveling through, there's actually a place where everything okay. red and then it goes again. You need mm-hmm. to stop and put everything on red and take a moment and think about and what is exactly happening. Are you becoming isolated from your family? Uh, are you giving up your own opinions? You know, what is it that you can do? The point of the book is there are no inescapable traps. It seems like there are, but there are not. If you can take the time and use your human intellect and wait for the opportunity, the opportunity will come along for you to um, escape whatever that situation is. But you have to be prepared. You have to have been thinking. And sometimes that involves a little bit of uh, deception. You have to use some deception to get yourself out. And it's okay to do that if you're in a bad situation. That's kind of what the book is about. You had a story in there, I think, um, of your potential first uh, trick or service. Oh, yeah. How you, you slipped slip it. it. Would, Would you, you mind, mind sharing, sharing that? Well, it, I, I didn't slip it. I, I actually ended up doing getting out of that because I behaved like a decent person. Remember that one of the goals in the house was that we were supposed to act like friends, but really we were busily, all of us trying to climb up and get to baby's position. I was trying not to work, uh, uh, not, to, not to have to sell myself. And I managed to get my $100 a day by by working my ass off in nursing homes and at assembly houses. So that's how I'd get my money each day. But uh, Essence, who had been a um, uh, Essence model, that's why I called her Essence, uh, mm-hmm. Prince had taken her child to Chicago, and that's how he was keeping an extra hold on her 
to that oh, she didn't God. know where her kid was. You know, so he would he had her child in a whole other city other than Cleveland. That was the real reason he ended up was he was in Chicago. And I had seen that that child because I was taking my son to the same daycare where that baby was. She had very unusual eyes. They were um, those light brown, amber green eyes that you see sometimes mm-hmm. on mixed race people. And her mm-hmm. son had those same things. So I actually told her I actually uh, told her that I knew where her kid was and told her where he was at. And one morning she came into my room and gave me a stack of money and just told me, don't believe anything you hear today. And I took the money and put it in. Uh, That day later on, baby told me that I was going out with Chuck to a private party, which which was like a warning sign because baby always went to those. We didn't get to go to those. Mm. Uh, When we got there, it was actually a pretty nice party. Uh, There were some uh, television personalities there. There were some actors I knew there. There was a band playing that, uh, was uh, had a record out. It was it was way cool, and I actually started to relax until uh, Chuck introduced me to a guy, told me that he owed the man five hundred dollars and he didn't have his wallet. And I said, mm-hmm. "You don't have your wallet, but we got five hundred dollars back at uh, Tara. That's what I called her, the place where we were living. Uh, we have five hundred dollars back at Tara. Why don't we just go get the five hundred dollars?" He said mm-hmm. that the gentleman uh, did not want to wait. For the five hundred dollars, and unless he got his five hundred dollars now, his two thugs, he, the man had two bodyguards, were going to beat the hell out of Prince, and uh, all I had to do was just get a man a blowjob, and he'd write the five hundred dollars off. Hmm. <laughs> it's all that's up. It's all that had to happen. That's all I had to do. Luckily for me, the thing that Essence had given me that morning was six hundred dollars. She had stuffed six hundred dollars into my hand, so um, I actually just pulled the money out my purse. And gave the gentleman the $500. And I didn't have to suck any uh, penises that night, uh, which was fantastic because, you know, it was just a ploy. Once you uh, turn that very first trick, you're simply a prostitute because now all you're negotiating is price Mm -hmm. if you're willing to do it. You know, and that was the key. That was the key of not not doing that. Just don't do the first one. That's another piece of advice I would give to any women caught in bad situations. If there's something they want you to do that you know is going to change your life, it's a pivot point. You know, it's a pivot point. Simply do whatever it takes to never do whatever that thing is until you can get away from it, until you can get out. If that thing is shoplifting, don't shoplift. If that thing is writing bad checks, don't write those bad checks. If that thing is turning a trick, don't turn that first trick. And until you do that, you still have the opportunity to get out and be it. And I'm going to say, even if you end up having to do it, you still have to try and find those opportunities. But it's better if you can figure out that these people are trying to get you to do things that are illegal or immoral or just not decent. It would make you not a decent person. Uh, Don't do those things. Stop. Now, now were you, you able, able to pull out? Oh, I was, yes. I was really lucky. I tell you, serendipity worked in my uh, direction because Irish was just showing out. The lady from uh, Ireland, a fiery, redhead, beautiful woman, didn't want to be there, but she was there for baby. She was in love with um, baby, not with, not with Prince. Hmm. So the, the key was that 
she didn't want to be there and she kept running away and their and their and their time was that they they had to keep going to get her so they couldn't pay attention to me and then the fact that i was organizing i had taken over organizing everything i was counting the money and each day i'd go out and work all day i'd work in the mornings from 4 a.m to 6 a.m in nursing homes and get about 50 dollars cash for drawing blood, collecting specimens from the old people. They paid me straight cash. Then I'd go to the temporary workforce place where you go to assembly houses and you work all day and they pay you cash. So that's how I was getting my $100 a day, every day. What, what kept you there? He threatened when I first got to Cleveland, he actually, uh, threatened my son and my family and said, now that you're in Cleveland, if you leave here, I will go to Chicago and I will hurt your mom. I will hurt your dad and I will hurt your child. Hmm. So how did you ultimately escape? Well, I was the only one that had never been arrested in that house. I never got arrested. I never got picked up because I wasn't out there. Uh, and he got arrested for uh, rape. So uh, they believe he raped his best friend's girl. So they had him in jail and he had uh, bond sent and they gave me the money to go get him. I did not <laughs> go get him. I did so you not took the money and ran. I took the money and ran back to Chicago. I sure did. Every well, bit of it. What ultimately happened to him? Ultimately, he was stayed in jail for three years because he didn't get out and he got convicted. Uh, he stayed in jail three years. But when he got out in three years, baby was waiting for him. Uh, they actually uh, called me because they still had my mom's number and told me that, you know, come on back and we can get it going on again. I told him, uh, no, no, you want me, you have to come to Chicago. And I wouldn't do that if I was you. That's basically what I told him. I told my dad all about uh, I told my parents all about what had happened to me. And my father said that uh, if he tried to come back to the city, we'd make sure that that uh, we uh, took care of him. Yeah, I imagine your dad's well connected. He was, yes, yes. So, is when was this? Um, oh goodness, this was nineteen seventy-three. Okay, so it, it's been a it's been a few. Oh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Okay. Now, from this, I'm going to guess that he's probably not even alive anymore if he lived that kind of life. Uh, I don't know if he's alive, but I will tell you that him and baby actually did, at the end, retire and get married and live in a little house with cats. I can tell you that actually did happen. <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they actually uh, retired. and uh, ended up How romantic. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that's romantic. I think what ha I would say what happened is they lost their ability to run the rope dope on people as they simply got older, and then mm. married each other and became a couple. How about Essence and um, Irish? Uh, Essence, I know, actually died, um, and unfortunately, she ended up being uh, 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 hooked on drugs and dying. And Irish, I heard from a baby when I talked to her, had went back to Ireland, but kept the same profession. Hmm. 
So not, not all happy endings. No, not all happy endings. I uh, consider myself a happy ending, but even I uh, had to adjust back into being a decent person. After you live with people that are scandalous, scandalous stuff looks normal to you. And you have to get back into being a person that is decent. I think my basic decency protected me there. And the fact that I had a decent education and then got to talk about education, a decent education also protected me because some of the stuff that they were saying was just stupid, crazy stuff. But again, you didn't argue about it because it was not, it, it would get you nothing but a, a slap across the face or a, uh, uh, locked in a closet or something crazy. So you just let the crazy stuff go on. Well, definitely good advice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you took the money and ran. So let's get to the cool part of the story. Oh, the what cool part. Next? Yeah, I went to the, uh, uh, I was still a little while when I first got back. My grandmother interceded when I was about 20 and, uh, told me that the whole family was following me down this horrible path that I hadn't gone to college. I had graduated high school at 16 uh, and my whole family, we seem to have a math and science gene and that I was personally responsible for what happened to my five brothers and sisters because they were following me like I was their big sister. Mm. Uh, thought that I should go back to college. I applied to the University of Illinois, Chicago, and went back there, got a degree in uh, engineering, uh, got a job at a big aerospace company. They paid to get my master's degree in uh, management. Um, from there, I became a certified manager, a professional engineer, uh, started doing uh, management, um, and went up that path. Now, the book that I have out now uh, Bullets and Bosses Don't Have Friends is on pre-order at Amazon. And what I've done there is I've taken 21 of the best terrible situations that I faced in corporate America. Uh, I recently retired, actually retired September the 30th. Um, mm, and, congratulations. and I retired as a vice president of operations for a $1.2 billion organization for one of their divisions. And mm. climbing up that ladder when you are from the lower middle class is hard because there's so many unwritten rules and things you just don't know. So I've tried to take the stories of the unwritten rules and put them in there. And at the end of every chapter, I've put an exercise for the person to look at their own career and figure out, you know, am I managed material? That's number one, because everybody doesn't want to be in management. Some people just want to do their job and leave them alone. You know, leave me alone. Let me do my job. Some people just want to be technical. But if you do want to be one of those people that climbs up the ladder, uh, the things I learned are of value to people like me who don't have anybody to tell them. You know, I, there was nobody to tell me what to do. The best my family had ever done was a Chicago policeman and assembly jobs. We hadn't mm -hmm. been supervisors and managers and directors like other people. So each time you go up a level, there's a whole new level of rules and unwritten rules and activities and how you need to behave. And I tried to capture all those and put them in 21 stories. Would you agree that the number one rule is probably networking? I think the number one rule is networking, but I think one of the other rules that um, 
And networking is is the way you do what I consider the, the rule that's with that, which is you have to fit in in some way. That means you don't have to change yourself, but you have to fit into that corporate culture in some way if you want to be one of the bosses, you want to be one of the leaders. And the way you do that is you have to network with people and not. So one of the things I tell in the story, and this is one of the ones that talks about fitting in and networking, was I was working for a company and I was the production supervisor and Rodney King happened. The whole Rodney King meeting Mm -hmm. thing happened. And back then, if you wanted to do presentations, you had an AV cart. You had a cart with a with a television on it, a microphone on it. You had the little thing. You put the little flip chart on it. You could project it on the wall. And you roll that cart around from place to place. I must have been working at the place about, I guess, three or four weeks. And I was rolling the AV cart down the hall the day after Rodney King, after the riots broke out. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues saw me rolling it and went and got security. They thought I was trying to loot the company. Oh, boy. They thought I was wow. trying to loot the company. To which I wow. told them, why would I loot this old 10-year TV? And why would I loot from the company in plain daylight, rolling down the hallway? Come on, guys. But when I got home and talked to my husband, he says, well, you've joined nothing. Back then, we had a softball team, a chess team. People ate lunch together. They went out to lunch Mm. together. And I was doing none of those things. I was coming to work every day, very diligently. I was on time. I was prepared for my meetings. I was doing everything I needed to do. But I wasn't making any connections with anyone. I wasn't, I like your word, networking. I wasn't networking even with the people that sat next to me. I had an Mm. office with Four of the managers were all the same rank right together. And we weren't even we weren't even talking to each other. Those three were going out together, but I had made no effort to join up, you know, to that group or to talk to that group or be in that group. And I think that's one of the reasons why they didn't recognize that I would loot the company. I was the only um female um black manager that they had there. And and um all they had was what they saw on television. They they didn't know me. And that's when I changed my um, approach to my career and that I started to uh, talk to those managers and to other people in the organization about what my goals were, what their goals were and how we could help each other. I joined up to some organizations for engineering and management and started going to those uh, activities and meeting people and knowing people. Uh, in fact, one of the best jobs I ever got, I got from uh, a guy that I met at one of the seminars that I went to, you know, just hmm. uh, talking to him. And uh, over time, uh, we we had the same sort of job. So we established a, uh, a, a communication activity. Now, back then, we talked to each other on the phone. We, didn't, we weren't emailing, but we would talk to hmm. each other on the phone about what we were facing. And a position opened up in this company. He recommended me for it and I got it. And that was a pure networking activity because I would not have known about the position, nor probably would the company have considered me if he hadn't uh, come by and said, I think she's good for that job. So networking has absolutely helped me in my, you know, in my career. It's probably helped you um, get some friends too. Yes. I still have friends from all my, or all the places I've worked, I still have friends that I keep up with because part of the uh, networking is not to lose the people that you have, even if you change positions. So I've moved a couple of times from one state to another, 
but I still have my friends in those other states and I keep in contact with them by at least uh, trying to contact them once every two months. It uh, used to be once a month, but now that I'm retired, it's once every two months. I just give them a call and see, see what they're doing. If I'm in the area, we have dinner together. And we uh, sometimes our kids are going to the same uh, colleges. We'll meet up and hang out with our kids and, you know, take them out to dinner together and introduce them. So, you know, same thing, just things that you don't know to do if you're not, you know, from that group. Well, that's fantastic, actionable advice. Now, to wrap things up, what's next for Tony Crow? Oh, my goodness. I actually am going to be a full-time author. Uh, right now, I have uh, four books out on Amazon. I have the Never Sell a Dollar Whore, which was my debut novel, which we talked about. I have mm-hmm. Daytime Lives of the Ladies of the Night, which is a supplemental book to Never Sell a Dollar Whore, trying to answer a set of questions people just kept asking me over and over again. I thought, I'm just going to write a story about it. I have this Bullet and Bosses Don't Have Friends, which is a book. And then I have a workbook to that, uh, Bullets and Bosses, that people, if they can't get the book, I'm actually going to, when I uh, put Bullets and Bosses out, I'm actually going to put the book out on Amazon for 99 cents on Halloween because I'm going to run it probably for uh, at least three or four days because I have a lot of young people that I've been mentoring and they don't have the $5.99 for a book, you know, (laughs) And, and the book is new. I'm not making any money out of it right now anyway. So what does it matter if I start it off, you know, at 99 cents and then take it to its full price after a few days? And I'll send out emails and things to all my friends to tell them, get this book while it's $0.99. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to leave it $0.99 cents long, but get it while it's $0.99. Cents. And I'll have the workbook at $0.99 cents at the same time. So for 2 bucks, they'll be able to get everything. And then I've got in there that uh, anybody that wants to send me an email, I'm willing to uh, email them back or give them uh, talk to them about anything that's going on. I'm not doing, I'm not charging for any of that. That's, I just... I just think that there are so many talented people that are not born with um, money. They're just not born with money, nor do they have anyone to to talk to, to, to ask a simple question like, hey, what do I do in this situation at the job? One of my employees just embarrassed me in a meeting. What what do I do about that? You know, what's what should I do about that? And that's, right. that's a four or five minute conversation for me to say to them, listen. You have two choices. You can do A, B, or C based on how you feel about this. Now go forward and make a choice and do what you want. And that's just a small uh, bit of my time to make sure that other people have the opportunity to climb up. The company is better when you have people from different levels in management. You know, it's just better. You don't want all the wealthy people to be the bosses and leaders because that's not a good company. That's not a good company. They don't understand. Sure. It's good to have all kinds of diversity. Now, people can find you at uh, TonyCrowWriter.com, right? And that's Crow with an E. Yes. And Tony with an I. Tony with an I. TonyCrowWriter.com. And and there's a page that says comment. That's how you can get in touch with me. But you can also email me. Remember, my email is easy. It's TonyCrow at TonyCrowWriter.com. I, I answer every email that I get. I respond to every comment that I get. And sometimes I end up uh, calling and talking to people or they end up calling and talking to me. But I answer every comment. I answer every email. You know, I, I've made that part of my life. Uh, it was the kindness of others that sometimes saved me from making bad mistakes. 
So I've got to play it for it, you know. Um, I got to try and make others have an opportunity like I had. Well, that's wonderful, and I appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate being on your podcast. You, uh, I listen to some of your others, and they are pretty interesting. You, uh, you ask good questions. Thank you. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. Hayes? A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing the diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 